As we see some movement at the takeoff zone, it's Kelly Slater grabbing rail. A clean entry, this thing holding open, it spits. When it spit me, I thought it was going to spit me off my board. Comes out with the spit, spits him out. Comes out after the spit, gets spat out of another good looking wave here. Spit, spit, spit. We're just spitballing, right? Yeah, I got is that a Dwayne tribute shirt? Yeah, buddy. Wow. <laughs> Amazing. Oh, uh, that's funny. Sign us on so we can talk about it. <laughs> yeah, guy. Welcome, everybody. The Spit Podcast. David Lee Scales, Scott Bass here with you on a uh, Wednesday, no, Tuesday, Wednesday morning. It's uh, October 21st, Wednesday, and we're talking spit. We're talking all things surf here. Good morning, Dave. Good morning. Listeners seem to be pretty gracious if we decide to record on a Wednesday instead of a Tuesday occasionally, right? I don't get any flack about it. Not, yeah, I mean, maybe that means we don't have any listeners. That's a good point. <laughs> uh, I was just admiring your Dwayne Allman shirt. Uh, oh, yeah. Would you ever... Get that. Would you ever wear Dwayne. a band's concert t-shirt to their own concert? Um, my, my gut reaction is, yeah, I would. And then as I think about it, I would, I don't know, why not? You know, like the reason that I wouldn't do it is because I would feel insecure about how somebody else might view me. And that's really weak, right? That's a sign of weakness. I should go there in love and support of my band that I'm a fan of and, and you know what I mean? And, and regale them with my fandom by wearing a, one of their shirts. Nothing would bring them more joy. If you were hosting your next boardroom show and somebody shows up wearing a boardroom show t-shirt, wouldn't that bring you joy? It does and it has. Yeah, there you go. I've seen it and I'm like, wow, that's a cool, I forgot that shirt, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's always funny. Uh, the Beach Boys is the only band I can think of, but the Beach Boys drummer wears a Beach Boys hat while he's drumming on stage at their concert. Yeah. <laughs> like he's actually advertising their own merch for them, which is hilarious. Yeah, yeah the whole deeper concept of how we dress relative to how people perceive us it's kind of fascinating, but it might be too much for this. For this, uh, well, I'm in a bathrobe. If that, if that's any that indicator, that is? <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> it's getting chilly. It's getting chilly these days. And did uh, these go on YouTube? Do the people see us? Yeah, they, they do. Oh, they do. <laughs> they do. Yeah. Oh my lord. So, at any rate, dude, I uh, like it. Yeah, I like that we're just rolling out of bed and kind of just like whatever we're wearing is what we're wearing, man. That's how I go through most of my life is rolling straight out of bed. And um, my, out, my uniform for daily life is jeans and a T-shirt. So yeah, yeah. that's about it. Right. Um, I've got a quick follow-up. Somebody said, hey, David, I loved hearing We Just Disagree uh, when you play it. I'm 55, and it reminds me of being a kid. Maybe you could play some Barry, a Barry White tune if you and Scott ever have a love fest for the show. <laughs> I like that song too. That I, I like that song for whatever. Well, that's one of those songs that I'm like, I'm, like when I was in my teens, I would have been embarrassed to say that I liked it. Totally. But now I'm like, that's a really cool song. Totally. That's the vast majority of what I've listened to now is exactly what you just said. Songs that would have embarrassed me years ago. 
I was on a trip. Well, my last trip, my last little surf trip I was on. And this friend of ours, do you know Zen, Zen Del Rio? Anyway, yeah. Zen, Zen's like, we were talking about music and we're all big music like you. We're like into music. And he's like, Poco, I'm actually starting to like Poco. And I was like, okay, that's where I draw the line. That's where I draw the line. I don't even know who Poco is. I'm not sure I do either. He might have meant Toto. Toto, oh, okay, Poco, okay, okay. Poco, Toto. It's kind of the same thing to me. It sounds like the name of a small poodle. So um, Toto, you're right, it does. Toto, I only know the couple of hits. And if they come on, you know, Africa comes on or whatever. But yeah, I mean, Africa. So it was Toto. Yeah, I'll sing, I'll sing it, I'll sing along with it, but I would never put it, add it to a playlist. I would never seek it out. And my other friend was like, he was like, I know what you mean, Scott, but listen to this lead guitarist. The lead guitarist is good. Like that's sort of the go-to line that I hear a lot from my friends. Like when it's like an out, a, a band that you're kind of like, I don't know. They always pinpoint one of the players and go, that guy's a really good drummer or something like that. <laughs> and they're probably Look, right. Look, I know they these, are. No, those guys are insane musicians. Of there's course. No doubt about it. Yeah. But my problem is there's certain things that kind of jump the shark because, or they, they just become played out like yeah. journey, for example. Yeah. Uh, I don't ever need to hear another journey song in my life. I know them all. I can sing them along with you, but yeah. I've just heard them too much. And then not only have I heard them too much, but then the fandom around them starts to annoy me. Yeah. So when it comes on in Chili's on Friday night, every middle-aged woman goes, oh, this is my favorite song. Don't <laughs> stop believing. Okay, you know? now, or, or brown eyed girl. Every yeah. girl with brown eyes is like, oh, my dad used to sing this to me. It's like Van Morrison <laughs> is amazing and has so much better music. Never need to hear that again. And your dad needs to try harder. Now, a couple things. Speaking of Van Morrison, I've heard he's pretty salty and very salty in concert. Like, like he'll just like tell people to, you know, he'll just like, I don't know. I've, I've never seen well, him, but I've heard that he's, I've heard probably, that if you go there expecting to hear Brown Eyed Girl, he might just do a whole set of instrumentals where he's jamming on his saxophone. Perfect. That's what I love about Van Morrison. Yeah. And if I was in the audience and somebody was shouting, play brown, brown eyed girl, I would throw my drink at him. Be like, we don't want to hear brown eyed girl. <laughs> That's kind of what Van Morrison does, I think. I think Good. He, he literally goes, I'm not playing that, so shut up. Or something like I, used, I used a song in a podcast a month or two ago called Caledonia Soul Music. And yeah. it's an outtake from Van Morrison. You can find it on YouTube. And it's a 16 minute just riff. Right. And it is so good. And no song has gotten more uh, DMs or questions or inquiries than that song. Right. I had 20 people going, hey, dude, what was that song? It almost sounded like Van Morrison. It's like, yeah, here's a link okay, to you. I, I love that you're saying this. Um, so there's an album. I've mentioned it to you before. It's called Poetic Champions Composed. Do you know this one? No. Poetic Champions Composed. So let's go out with one of those songs. But it is an incredible Van Morrison album. It's, it's not, you know, no one has heard of it, you know, unless you but it's got some insane, beautiful, like just instrumentals where he's Perfect. just jamming. Yeah. Well, somebody, a buddy of mine gave me a, a vinyl for Christmas, I think last year, a record, Van Morrison Wavelengths. Yeah. Do you know that album? I've heard of it. Yeah, there wasn't a single song on there that I had known previously. And the album art is straight out of 80s Miami Vice. Like it, oh, right. it's so yeah. cheesy. I was like, dude, I'm not gonna like any of this. 
every song front and back is amazing. And like, I just let that thing play through and I, I find new ones all the time on there that I like better than I didn't. I thought I didn't like before. Yeah. I mean, the guy, the guy's amazing. Yeah, he is. The, and this one that I'm speaking of is probably like wavelength. It's very ethereal and there's tons of spirituality in it. And it's just really fascinating. Uh, now getting back to journey and the lady at Chili's, um, here's the thing I've been, and I've told you about this. I've been to these concerts that are um, yacht rock concerts. Yeah. And I agree with you when journey comes on at Chili's, you kind of throw up a little bit, but when you go to a con, when you, if you were to go see journey live and they were to play that and everyone around you is singing, you get caught up in the, the, the community of it, that everyone's on the same wavelength. Yeah. So to right. Speak. And, and they're all singing it. And there's just, um, I don't know, for me, I emote, like if I hear the Star Spangled Banner at a, at a sports event and everyone's singing it and stuff, it touches me. Yeah, I can't deny that. And I'll be honest, my anti-journey stance is total cynicism and I need to kind of sh shed that. Um, my dad is in a band and they actually, pre-COVID, they were like booking tons of gigs and they do play all cover, well, mostly cover music. So they do a mostly cover music, they do have some original songs, but they're all retired. They all kind of live in a retirement area and they all, they, they're like the band now. And my dad's <laughs> been playing, my dad's been playing since he was a kid. So like, yeah. he's, and he's been in bands when he was younger and all that, but in retirement, this is his thing. Anyway, what you're saying is 100% true because he'll tell me what they're practicing and learning and I will, in my head be like, no, you should do a deeper cut. Like that song everybody knows, but this song's so much better. But then I go and I watch them play. All anybody wants to hear is Hotel California. And yep. when they play Hotel California, yep. the whole room gets up and they dance and they yep. all mime the words. And it's like, oh, you know what? You're right. Just give them more Hotel California. Give them the 11 minute version with the guitar solo. You what does your dad play? Guitar, lead guitar. And is he, so, oh cool, so he does the guitar solo. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah, he collects guitars, he builds guitars. You're kidding. No, I'm serious. So I'm literally today, I'm going down to look at a venue. I'm producing an event called the Guitar Lovers Festival. Boom, you have and one additional attendee. I might want your father to perform, frankly. Oh, like, dude. Like, like it, it's, so anyway, I'm, I'm really excited about this new show I'm doing, because I'm a kind of a guitar geek. And I'm like, like in the surf world, if you were a, a surf kook that were like like a new to the sport and you were wow. into the surfboards you know that's yeah. kind of my level with guitars you know like i'm a complete kook but i love them and yeah. people everyone loves guitars and yeah so, anyway. so yeah, awesome so cool that your dad plays lead guitar yeah now i told you about this band mustache harbor right the yacht rock band right so yeah. i'm at the belly up they played hotel california and the lead guitarist was insane. The musicians were insane. These guys were so tight. Like I almost played it better than the Eagles. Almost. Yeah. Anyway. Well, Mustache Harbor is a good name, but our local, our local yacht rock band has even a better name. Um, okay, go for it. Yachty by Nature. Oh, that is good. Like Naughty by Nature, but Yachty. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, that's part of the fun with yacht rock bands is just the name themselves. Yeah. Um, hey, chill. I've got an email here. Um, David Scott, thanks for the excellent podcast. I enjoyed it. And he's speaking about our discussion about 
who started pro surfing? Was it oh. Ian Cairns? Was it Randy Rarick, Fred Hemmings? He says, my recollection from my days living on the North Shore in 1976, Randy Rarick worked tirelessly seven days a week organizing events, lining up sponsors, putting out athlete fires. Randy and Fred Hemmings talked daily as they nurtured the Budding Pro Surf Tour. Randy set up the pro class trials, of course, as an entry into the, into the Smirnoff Pro for those who couldn't make the cut. And um, this guy sent along his IPS card, his membership Crazy. card from uh, 1976. Uh, pretty good. And he, and he goes, hey, regarding a new leader of a new tour, of course, rhetorically, um, what about Dane Godowskis? He has the credibility, the smarts, and possibly the support from Vans. Anyway, that's my two cents. Good work, Dave Aarons. Awesome. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought of um, Dane, but he fits. He just never really did the tour. Well, let me throw this at you then. I got another. Um, we got a, a, an email from Fat Aki. Oh, that's such a good one. Yeah. Um, hey, great content lately, boys. Got me thinking about this. When Dirk Ziff stops sus subsidizing the WSL and closes its doors forever, the Australian government should buy it and run it as a nonprofit organization. Take the idea that the organization needs to be profitable away and put guys like Ace Buckin and Luke Egan in charge. Brands will pay for the contest, the governing body governs it, and makes decisions that are more about the future and health of the pro tour than some bean counter's bottom line. Control of pro surfing's future belongs in Australia. It is a part of that nation's culture like no other country. We could never see an event in North America again, and the vast majority of the country and the, probably the surfing world would not care. Meanwhile, competitive pro surfing marches on unmolested down under as I type this. They basically started all this. They know how to run it. Let them have it. And it's so deeply a part of their greater culture there that I trust they would do right by the idea that is pro surfing. P.S. David, wear a mask. Cheers, Fat Aki. David, wear your mask, you millennial degen. Is actually what he said. I have not heard a better um, take on how the tour needs to rise from the ashes. I totally agree. Fat Aki's Phoenix tour is what we'll call it. I actually presented that to, to Barton Lynch and we kind of ran with what Fat Aki wrote and we talked about it a lot. And it was good. Did, did Barton like it? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Barton, Barton, I, I wouldn't say, he, you know, I think what we should do too is sort of put an umbrella over this conversation that I can't speak for you, but I'm a fan of the WSL. I want the WSL to survive. We were just throwing this rhetorical thing out there in regards to, hey, 2020 is a wash. 2020 or 21, we don't know. At what point does it end? And maybe it never ends. Maybe the WSL runs and Dirk Ziff turns a profit and this whole thing goes on forever. And that's fine too. I'm not here to like, I'm just, we were just, or, you know, last episode, we were throwing it out there. Well, look, uh, it's fair that you say that. And by the way, uh, Pat O'Connell was on Dave Prodan's podcast. Yeah, I listened to some of it. Okay, well, somebody, I didn't listen, but somebody said, um, fast forward an hour, go to the one hour and four minute mark That's and just <laughs> listen to the end. Yeah, and, he, and then I was like, well, is it even worth listening to at that point? No, it wasn't. Okay, well, the listener said, I think it is at that point, strictly because Pat O'Connell seems bullish on the tour actually happening. Yes. He's like, yeah, oh yeah, they're, they're going to run it. Like, uh, yeah. Or Pat's claiming that they're going to run it in December. Um, 
I have inside intel that a couple of trophies were commissioned to be made for the uh, Pipe Masters. So whether or not, and that's in December, by the way, as the kickoff to the 2021 season, not the end of 2020. Uh, so whether or not they did that as a, I mean, they're, they could be making the trophies uh, just in case they get the green light because you yeah. need some lead time to do that stuff. It doesn't mean that because they're doing that, that it will officially happen, but they're planning for it anyways. And Pat O'Connell seems optimistic about it. However, there are real world constraints that will ultimately mandate the decision. Yeah. And look, they, they have sort of tentatively opened up Hawaii to tourism. I got some emails from some tourism companies this morning about, Hey, get a great deal at the outrigger in Waikiki or whatever, you know? And, um, and there's been news broadcasts about, Hey, Hawaii's slowly opening up. You've got to go through some protocols some testing and stuff, but certainly the state, at least the chamber of commerce wants the tourism industry and the dollars that flow there to start back up. But you know, you're right. Cause what, as we all know, we have this sort of growth in, in COVID increasing, right? The number of cases is increasing as the continental United States gets colder and we start to get more indoors and, and this thing perhaps grows because we're all in constrained quarters. And then we all from Ohio decide to fly to Oahu for December with our COVID. So I don't know. It, it's going to be strange. It's going to be difficult. I certainly hope that I can't wait for the pipe masters. I'm all for it. I'm all, I did listen to what Pat said. Not that what, look, I didn't mean to say that when you fast forward to the one hour and three minute mark and you listen to Pat talk, it wasn't worth hearing, but it wasn't very deep. And it was just kind of the company line. Like we're all systems go until otherwise, you know, it's kind yeah. of what I heard. I didn't get any a deep insight. I just kind of got, He's a, press, a, comp- a press release that they would have put out. It was basically a press release. He's a corporate company spokesperson and, and, good the, host, He's and, the, host, and the host of the show, Dave Prodan, is also a company per- spokesperson. They both work for the same company. So yeah. what do you really expect to get out of them? Exactly. And, and they're not professing to be anything else. They're just saying, here's an update on what we're doing. They're not yeah. trying to go deep. So yeah. we're not shaming them, obviously. No, I but, definitely don't want to do that. No, clearly. But... Uh, I think Fat Aki's email is actually logical. I do too. I loved it. When I read it, I was like, I'm all about this. This The other thing is it's kind of, I think we've identified over the course of the last 30 years that making competitive professional surfing, applying that to a mainstream audience is a forced fit. It's a square peg in a round hole. The mainstream audience does not care. This will come back, uh, in a future or a conversation that we're going to have later about the surf ranch classic, the longboard event that they did, uh, which highlights exactly what I'm saying. Um, but I'm okay with the idea of the core tour being based out of Australia, having the best surfers, a few number of them in the best venues around the world. You and I can fund it cause we'll give them 60 bucks a year to watch all of the events. And there'll be, you know, I don't know, 10,000 people that do that maybe more. So that'll be enough for them to figure out the math and run the business. And then on the flip side of that, there's this other wing of professional surfing where John John has his own clothing line and soft top brand. 
and Laird Hamilton has his superfoods and they're making far more money doing that as private companies than they ever were going to get paid from Hurley or Quicksilver or anybody else, you know, like that is a fine model for me. I think let the market decide and the market has obviously spoken for the last 30 years in regard to competitive surfing. Yeah, I agree with everything you said. And, and I'll add that Australia is such a sporting culture. And, and Fat Aki mentions it in his email. We, I, I omitted it. But if basically the entire country knows the surf stars. The surf yeah. stars are on par with like professional golfers. Yep. You know what I mean? So everyone knows who they are. It's part of – and sport's part of their culture. It always has been. By the way, I did text Ian Cairns. And ask him, I go, hey, you know, I read Sean Doherty's piece on the death of pro surfing. And, um, and it says that you invented pro surfing in 1976, that you devised a rating system and crowned a world champion. I've always thought Fred Hemmings was behind this. Am I missing something here, Ian? And he wrote, ha, PT and I devised a system for the Australian Professional Surfing Association in early 1976. We convinced Randy Rarick to agitate with Fred for a global system and boom, the IPS was formed. We still had to write rules, et cetera, for Fred. That's what Ian wrote me. Okay. So, so I he think- did, He did have a big part of it, I think. Yeah, I think uh, everybody's right. Yes, <laughs> you, exactly. you, you actually added a lot more context and history and Sean was trying to keep it down to a certain word count, you know, yeah, probably. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. All insightful information though, perfect for podcasting. Like this is the perfect medium to kind of fill in some of those details. Um, not to segue away from the tour cause we can come back to it, but I did want to read you this email, which I think yeah. you'll really appreciate. Mm -hmm. It's a time travel email it says, Hey David, I'm a surfer from Argentina and I recently started using Spotify and I ran into your podcast and I find it's great. Very amusing and insightful. The funny thing is, I started listening to it from the beginning and I'm currently in September, 2014 and I'm going to continue in order until the present. It brings back a lot of memories when you guys are talking about contests. For example, Gabriel Medina isn't even a world champ yet. Your discussions about judging and format. I find you and Scott are a great team. Scott is older, speaks 100% from the heart, ultra American, and you are more thoughtful, more fact checked and maybe have a more holistic view on matters. These contrasts make the show very interesting and alive. It's also great the fact that you both really own how you are and don't take criticism the wrong way. I love how Scott is really not politically correct and speaks his mind without fear, but at the same time, very open to discussion and receiving criticism. That is, I believe, the way to go. If you ever read this comment on an email, I'll find out probably a year or two later <laughs> as I reach the corresponding episode. All the best and aloha and uh, buenas olas, Eduardo. How funny oh. is that? Eduardo. Frutas, Eduardo. It's muchas frutas, frases, y manzanitas, y, uh, <laughs> y uh, how do you say grapes? Huevas? I don't know how you say grapes. but um, Muchas frutas, Eddie. I thought it was funny. I mean, first of all, it's a funny concept of him listening through and like him catching up in real time, but also his assessment of us, I think we've changed. If his assessment is correct, I'm like, those are old caricatures, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> I was more, I started laughing. I'm like, 
David fact checked? What Scott? Well, I guess Scott's still ultra American, but um, yeah, it's it's funny cool. to me. Yeah, that I is cool. It. I can't wait to hear from. We should. It'd be fun to get Time Channel um, emails from him. Like I tell, a I should tell him. Yeah, I should tell him every three weeks. Send me a note on what you're listening to. And yeah, like, that'd be so funny. By the way, to give context to my Spanish on the fruit, I actually one of my best friends is Eddie from Argentina. Like I have a friend that's Eddie, and he's from Argentina, and his mom would always say, "Eddie, eat some fruit." So whenever we talk to each other, we always go, "Eddie, frutas, huevos, manzanitas." But, you know, it's like our go-to line. So. That's funny. Yeah, very good. Yeah. Well, um, should we go back to the Surf Ranch Classic, or where do we? Oh, I got a follow-up. Somebody wanted to <laughs> fill you in on questions you had about Laird's money. Do that real quick. Scott asked about when Laird's paper money will become real money. He's yeah. referring to common uh, feature called in IPOs called the lockup period, where insiders are not allowed to shell, sell shares. There's actually no legal re requirement concerning lockups. It's basically up to the firm to stipulate the lockup period in the IPO's prospectus. Uh, Laird's is 180 days. So after 180 days, Laird can sell his shares on the New York Stock Exchange. However, he will have to report any large sale to the SEC. SC, and usually investors don't look too kindly on small IPO firms, founders that sell too quickly. So I bet he actually won't sell very quickly. However, most banks uh, that cater to wealthy individuals will allow their clients to post shares as collateral for debt with very favorable terms. So they don't have to repel until they say, sell their shares. Also, you asked about a precedent for surf-related firms to follow the, quote, rush to IPO model. I think Laird has managed to transcend surf yet again. To the institutional investors that bought shares in Laird Superfoods, the firm is situated in the, quote, plant-based natural foods industry. This segment has seen successful IPOs. Recently, for example, Beyond Meat IPO'd at over a billion dollar market cap. My bet is that Laird Superfoods decision to IPO now is at least in part due to the strong investor demand for firms in this space. Although it's also true uh, that Laird Superfoods is showing a net loss. Those losses are probably due to high marketing costs. Its gross profit margin is actually around 34%, which is pretty strong for that sector. Mm. So there's that's your financial segment. Yeah, thirty-four percent mar uh, profit margin. That's for that sector. That's that's interesting to me. Yeah. Huh. So do we know? Do you have a talk a stock ticker on Laird Foods? Where mm. where he's at? How many millions he's got right now? No, I did I not. Last week he was at like forty or something. He was right? at thirty-four last yeah. week. Um, no, I did not check prior to the show. What's the? Um, do you know what the the, the ticker symbol is? Uh, LSF. So it's at 56 bucks right now. It's oh, basically, okay. uh, I think it's gone up 10 bucks since last week. I think it was trading oh, yeah, like it 45 last week. Yeah. So Laird's up, Laird's up significantly. He's a super rich for the superfoods. And he can, you know what? Probably due to our discussion about it, people are like, I'm in and big time money flooded in. Well, you purchased some, what was it? Turmeric or what would you buy when you sent me that text message? Oh, I always buy the um, Laird superfoods coffee supplement that has like wild mushrooms in it Here, i'm gonna hold it up to the screen i need to talk so that the camera shows me yeah can can you see yeah, what yeah. that is yeah. yeah yeah a little bit higher just a touch higher yeah that's perfect there right there go. there i am there at the store go. buying my superfood creamer superfood creamer with a goofy footed laird 
with a stand-up paddle on the front. <laughs> oh, dude, somebody sent me a photo of you that Surfline posted on a huge wave at Makaha uh, oh, really? uh, on a stand-up paddleboard. Huh. Um, it was, one? yeah, it was an epic photo. I could show you right now. Uh, it says the post is from, actually, it's not Surfline. It looks like it's Surfer. It says Scott, quote, Bassy Bass. <laughs> uh, they don't like me over there. I'm sure there's some negative shit coming my way. <laughs> Makaha SUP Big Wave Challenge, February 14th, 2008. No wonder he never deleted SUP troll posts. <laughs> How's that photo right there? Giant a bit, wave. A little giant, bit higher. There you go. Sorry. Perfect. You're on a giant wave. I'd say that yeah. thing's four times overhead on a stand up paddle looking back like you burned somebody, which I wouldn't <laughs> be surprised if you had. <laughs> Dude, here's the rule at Makaha. Don't burn anybody, believe me. You're looking back. That's actually, that's actually Makaha Point. Okay. That's not the bowl. Um, that's during the Ku Kaika Challenge, hmm. the very first and only stand-up paddle big wave event. And um, I had a funny run-in with Jamie Mitchell during that contest where we almost took each other out. It was pretty oh, funny. Really? I was uh, like – he was paddling out and a big set was coming and I was on this wave and I was riding and I don't know if you know Makaha, but the, the point breaks and it, and it breaks towards the bowl. Right. And so if it's big enough, they connect, you know, like, and then you, you know, you, you do a bottom turn and set up into the bowl. If it's smaller, the bowl breaks first and the point doesn't connect, you know, and it was pretty, it wasn't like massive Makaha. So it was kind of doing that. And, He's paddling out. The ball's about to break on him, and I'm trying to get around the ball. I'm doing a bottom turn around it, and I don't make it. And I'm like, and and I basically, basically, I run into him more or less. But he's like, dude, I'm so sorry, I got in your way. And I'm like, no problem. We just came up, you know, we're both gagging for air, just getting mauled by you know a 12 foot ball wave. Were you on a stand up paddle? Yeah, it was during the contest. I was in a heat, and he was paddling. I think he was in my heat too. And anyway. It was it was a funny little situation. It could have been very dangerous. Like no we, kidding. You know, we were feet from just getting smashed. Yeah. Um, can we talk about the Surf Ranch Classic? The longboard thing? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the funny? longboard thing. The funny thing is, is that this is the WSL, and this is the one event that they're doing in months. I guess not. There was those Australian events, but still one of very few events that they're doing this year and you and I almost don't care. I tried to watch it. I, first of all, I got a bunch of feedback about yeah, it before too. I watched it and it me. was all kind of like hating on it. And I was kind of, ah, oh, that's not fair. Let me go try and check it out. You know? And plus I'm a big fan of Devin's and, and I'm a fan of the WSL. I want to look at it, you know? So I went to it and I turned the volume off and I tried to scroll through to heats. And I could never really find heats. Like there was never any um, like normal formatting to the event. It was just, it was very mishmash. And I, I didn't sense that there was an event going on. Right. And I just kind of raced through, I probably, whatever, however long it was, I probably spent three minutes just looking at different waves. And I saw some cool rides, I, you know, Joel looked great. Um, he looked really good. Um, the the guy with the frizzy hair, um, a Stuart. Oh yeah. 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 I saw him on a left that looked really good. And 
But I did see some other ways where I was like, that's the world. These are the world's best longboarders. They don't have very good style. Well, so I did not watch it. Um, and I always try to do my due diligence, certainly when it relate comes to like preparing for the show. But I got a ton of feedback, just like you, a lot of it from very reputable sources, like people who I totally trust and who I've known for a long time. And everybody said the same thing. It wasn't like scattered feedback. It was all one consensus. And I can sum it up for you in two listeners kind of uh, messages. One says, WSL advertised their longboard contest at the ranch as being live on YouTube, like a total loser Eager for live contest surfing, I stayed up late to watch. It soon became apparent that it was actually not live. It was pre-recorded highlights package, which looked more like a tequila infomercial. I felt dirty enough wanting to watch longboarders in a wave pool. The fact that the WSL actually pulled a bait and switch just makes me feel stupid and angry. Would be keen to hear Devin Howard's take, particularly given his deference on the last debacle at the ranch. And this one gives you a little bit more detail for exactly how this played out. This person said, I just got finished watching the WSL longboard classic at the surf ranch with my wife. She is exactly what the WSL target demographic is. She's a Val, she knows of surfing, but she isn't what you would call core. She consumes social media content daily. She actually enjoys watching surf competition and she actually works in content marketing. And she has enough expendable income to make it worth advertising to her. I'm what they're trying to leave behind, a nihilistic board builder who finds corporate surf just about the lamest thing ever. It took about five minutes for us to realize that we weren't watching um, a wrap-up of the previous day's heats as a lead into the final, but rather a condensed version of the finals day. The longer we watched, the more hilarious and frustrating it become became. Wedged between awkward interviews and beer ads were heavily edited and chopped footage of surfers on waves. While longboarding does make the wave look the most fun of any craft I've seen, we hardly got to see any actual surfing. Never a complete ride. Never saw a pop-up. Never saw a fading bottom turn. Never a beautifully trimmed high line. Just the highlight nose ride and barrel sections. My wife summed it up perfectly. She said, quote, this isn't for people who actually want to watch this. This is the stuff you play on the corner TV at a sports bar. It actually makes the sport look worse, end quote. As a piece of content, it was absolutely unwatchable. I understand editing a competition to highlights and cutting out the dead space, but there were so many advertorials and poor editing to even understand what was happening in the event. It felt like 15 second Instagram clips with cheeky commercials shoved in between. And this is no offense to the surfers or Devin Howard. The bit that we did see was pleasing to watch and at a very high level. Devin probably had very little to do uh, with how the event gets presented. And then he said, finally, as a PS, I just got my Neat Essentials 3-2. Seriously impressed with the quality, and I'm still confused at how nice the suit is, full stop, not just nice for the price. So cool. that's his feedback. That's pretty, he pretty much nailed it. I mean, that's- I thought so too. That's pretty much how it was. And I think we have to realize that this really was just um, like a marketing thing for Cuervo. Like, but even, even saying that, you, you would feel like Cuervo must be disappointed if everyone's bummed on it. You know what I mean? 
Well, like unless some like the Cuervo marketing guys like, look, I need, I need, you know, 20 second spots every minute, no matter what, you know, I need to get my money's worth here. We put up a lot of money for this, you know? And so they had to force feed a bunch of spots into this thing. And it, that's what made it just so choppy and hideous. And they realized, Oh, we can really should only have an hour piece. So if he needs us to leverage and crowbar in all these spots, it's going to look like this, the editor, maybe the editor was under some pressure from the people at Cuervo. I mean, who knows, but at the end of the day, it, every, it's kind of a lose. Totally is. Uh, I don't think it does any favors for Cuervo or the WSL. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't. Yeah. I, I think it is exactly what you just said. Look, the WSL wasn't planning on doing a longboard event. Devin, you know, or whomever worked some angles with Cuervo and was like, Hey, I think we can actually WSL. I think we can get some money to actually do something here. And once you are kind of putting the cart before the horse, once you're putting the sponsor before the purpose of the event or the ethos of the brand or anything, then decisions start being made from the sponsor's side with the sponsor's best interest in mind and you lose the plot. And it appears that that's what happened here. Now, so, is this an official like longboard tour event? No. So on a side note, isn't Joel Tudor, doesn't Joel Tudor become the 2020 longboard world longboard champion because of his. No, I asked season? Devin about that. You're right. He's the only guy who won an event this year, but Devin said they're going to roll the points over to next year. Okay. So, so did you speak to Devin about this event? No, we need to though. I honestly wanted to give him, he knows he's going to catch well, so much I flack. He probably already has. Yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt. I've been interrupting a lot here this morning. No. You um, saw what? I saw one of his posts on Instagram. I know what you're going to say. What am I going to say? He's directing all the attention to the behind the scenes cut. That's far more interesting and doesn't have any advertising in it. I don't know about that. It was more, oh. I think what I saw was um, feedback he had written on Instagram. Oh. And it basically said, hey, I'm, I'm hearing everyone's feedback. Like he's getting a bunch of insight from people on this. He basically wrote, I'm getting everyone's feedback. I understand your concerns. I will direct it all to the appropriate person. All I was was the guy that ran the actual contest. I didn't have anything to do with the edit. And, and thank you all very much for watching. And I will direct all of your feedback and concerns to the appropriate people. He, he kind of just company lined it right through, which and is basically what you said a minute ago. And I think we all know that about him and he's communicated effectively to let us know that he is uh, limited in his creative expression of what he can execute. Yeah. And which is a huge mistake. And you and I, a huge mistake from the WSL. Yeah, they need yeah, to agreed. let Devin run the thing. He'll be agreed. great at it. Agreed. And you and I know he's very competent. And his, I don't even want to say his heart's in the right place. I mean, it is, but it's more than that. It's like his compass is calibrated accurately. Yeah. So he knows how to take it where they want it to go. And they're, what ultimately might end up happening, I hate to make this prediction, but he, he won't want to be associated with them. It's yeah, like okay. Devin's got too much cred. Well, to you, where you totally nailed it. He's going to get all this feedback and he's trying to say to everybody, Hey guys, my hands are tied. But at a certain point he's going to go, man, if I do two of these events in a row or more, then I just, my reputation is sullied. 
Totally. So. You, that's, that's the key here is that the WSL should realize and probably does realize that Devin's an incredible brand manager. And he also realizes that Devin Howard is his biggest brand. And so when he's involved with something that, that sullies his brand, he's got to look out for his brand. Yeah. And the WSL should be smart enough to go know that basically if Devin Howard is in charge of our longboard thing, we're buying into the Devin Howard brand, which is, which has been proven to be um, aesthetically on point. Um, you know, all of these things, like he, he's really good at presenting what he is. And oh, by the way, it's authentic. Like Devin is off that way. Like he's, you know, he's pretty smart and you know, which makes, which makes me wonder where this actually went wrong because it's got to be from so the that comp- advertiser. But, but look, that comp- I agree with you, but that component works. Everything else that Cuervo's done in the surf space has been really tasteful and cool. Like, to be honest, it's not over the top. It's not in your face. It's showing like Jared Mel and whoever else getting barreled in Nicaragua, like tastefully. There's no overt kind of branding. And so I like all those components. I guess putting them in the wave pool is the hiccup. Like honestly, if they did, if they did this exact exhibition, because this wasn't a contest, this was an exhibition that they made a highlights package out of and then put on the internet. If they did that exact concept in Nicaragua, it would have been probably cool. I don't know about that. It it, it kind of comes down to the editing, right? As you know, it comes down to the editing bay here. I mean, if it's as choppy and as weird and as uncohesive yeah. in Nicaragua as it was at the ranch, it that's has true. nothing to do with the wave yeah, or the true. setting. That's true. Yeah. Well, bizarre love triangle. As at, Love triangles can never really end with everybody. Speaking of love Canada. triangles, apparently Stephanie Gilmore has some freaky dude that's been stalking her. And at some point last week during the Tweed Coast Pro at Cabarita in Australia, this guy found her in the car park and started, I guess, talking to her. And this is after she has basically made it known to him that she doesn't want anything to do with him. And um, she got a restraining order of some sort. And he violated that and was arrested because he was – stalking her and freaked her out and um he was let arrested let go on a thousand dollar bail and i don't know man i just feel sorry for stuff and this guy i don't know what the deal is really i don't know if you have any insight in it i just kind of read from the from the local newspaper in australia about it but um you know this this guy this guy guy was fucking move on this guy was my kook of the week about a month ago uh along with mick fanning stalker um, and this relates to what Fat Aki was talking about, where surf celebrity surfers are celebrities in Australia and they're not yeah. here. Yeah. You could be anybody other than Kelly Slater or Laird Hamilton in America and never get noticed. Exactly. You could be John John, you could be Chloe Andino, you could be Gabriel Medina, anybody, and walk through the grocery store and nobody cares, which is the best type of celebrity, by the way, to have. Um, but yeah, it's a bummer to think that, yeah, Steph. The idea that you can't just go to the beach and go surfing because not, not only are you going to get recognized, but you're potentially going to get accosted uh, is takes away your joy. That is your one thing. That's the one thing you want to do. And you can't even do that in anonymity. By the way, this is not a, I'm not trying to make light 
But do you feel that pressure given that you are a public figure and that you surf the same spot all of the time? Not that anybody's going to cost you, but that you can't <laughs> surf in anonymity. When you go to the beach, there's going to be people who just automatically know you and you're going to have to engage at some level. Um, well, I am definitely not on the level of any of these people. I'm just a guy who goes surfing and puts on a surfboard show. Like, I, I don't even think I, I'm in that realm. You're not but, in that realm at all. But when you show up at the beach, you can't surf with anonymity. You've well, accepted that a long time ago. I mean, I don't know. I don't really think about it like that. I just go surfing, you know, like I, I mean, would I, do I do things differently? No, I'm just me. You know, yeah. I'm just, I'm just me, you know, um, you have do I done that. stupid stuff in the water and went, Oh my God, that is so lame. And Oh, people probably know who I am. That's even worse. Yeah. yeah I do that all the time. I'm, I'm, I'm still trying to grow. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm like, you know, far from, if this is perfect over here and this is super stupid and lame, I'm way more drawn to the super stupid lane. It's almost like a polar magnet. <laughs> my actions, words, and deeds tend to go towards stupid and lame. And then I find myself going, oh, my God, I owe this person an apology. What am I doing? Yeah. You know, I mean, but I don't know if that answers your question. But, I mean, you're in the same boat. You're, you're as, um, uh, you know, as many people know you as know me regarding your surf yeah. celeb status. No, but yours is different because you're in a small community where you've been doing something for a very long time for decades and surfing there the same spots for decades to where I feel like you never get a private session unless you got it. Yeah. But everyone's that surfs where I surf has been surfing there for decades. Yeah. Like all the, the regulars, you know, the guys that are regulars. So it's just like, I'm just one of the many, you yeah. know, like, I feel like I can, I can still surf in anonymity all the time though. Like I can always just move down the beach yeah, I I can do that too if I'm just by going down to you know surfing Del Mar or whatever. Right, 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 right. You know? um, but anyway, so I'm saddened for Lady Die, Steph Gilmore. This is a bummer. I I don't think we are conveying the um, amount of anxiety and angst that she probably feels. This is the second time she's had a situation with somebody, and um, you know, I mean, as a as a woman, in a you know, it's just a bummer. It's just a full-on bummer for her that, that she has to deal with these freaks, you know? It, totally. It's just weird. Dude, totally. It's I mean, surfing in competitions is hard enough. Yeah. You got some freaky dudes like, hey, I want to be your coach. I've got an idea on how you can be better. Why won't you talk to me? And it's just like, dude, <laughs> I said no. Which fucking part of that don't you understand? Get out of my life. Well, I mean, she's going to have to start uh, dealing with handle bodyguards and stuff. She's going to start having to hire bodyguards, you know? It's so crazy. Lame. It's totally lame. Um, speaking of Australian encounters, you can always count on Beach Grit for some good shark stories. And oh, by the oh way, they actually, they're actually legitimate stories. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sure you've seen this, but uh, Derek Riley wrote, look, over the course of four months, Nick Slater's been killed. A guy named Monty Hart DeVille's been killed. Rob Pedetri's been killed. Chantel Doyle was maimed. Andrew Sharp was killed. And Phil Mummert was disfigured. These are all surfers and all attacks by great white sharks in Australia in the last four months. That's insane. Yeah, it is. 
And uh, two divers have also been killed, not surfers. And this what comes on the heels of an, a little thing they did on a kayaker that him and his buddies were filming him fishing. Right. Maybe, maybe a half mile offshore. And a 12-foot great white swam right up to his kayak and started sussing him out. So the great white shark situation is a story that you and I haven't really touched on, in especially in regards to Australia, too much. Um, because there's only so much you can say. Yeah, another shark situation in, in Australia. But it has gotten to a point where there's probably uh, a need for us to, to excavate this story a little deeper. The most, uh, I don't know, compelling or heart racing footage that I saw was the Matt Wilkinson getting toe tapped. Right. Did you see that? I did. Dude. Insane. insane. So the footage is captured from um, surf life saving new South, new South Wales on their specialized shark drone. So apparently they fly a, sh a drone around trying to identify where the sharks are in their migration patterns and stuff. And, um, when the lifeguard that was steering the drone saw what was going on, he alerted the surfer who happened to be Matt Wilkinson. So Matt Wilkinson's paddling through the lineup and the drone finds a shark. The shark before the drone operator can do anything about it swims up under Matt Matt's foot and taps his toe and like identifies probably that it's a human being and not whatever the food he was looking for. And then just bolts scurries away or swims away as fast as possible so when you're watching it from above there's just a surfer blindly paddling and a shark comes up from behind you're going oh no oh my god what am i going to witness and he just taps the toe and bails so anyways the drone operator eventually did uh let matt wilkinson know that there was a shark in the area and that he should exit the water and apparently matt was like eh who cares like and he just kept surfing <laughs> But the footage is harrowing. It's crazy. Yeah, super gnarly. And, and obviously, Matt looked pretty shaken up by it. I mean, just imagine, just have that, you know, we've all had that feeling, like when you're paddling and you're like, God, what if a shark came up and just lurched out of the water? Like, how big would it be? What, it, what would I do? Would my legs be in the right place to, because that, that was just, um, you know, a shark, um, what's the word? I'm like, a curious shark. Yeah. And sometimes their curiosity comes in the form of, of a small little bite on the leg, which to them is, I'm just being curious to us is a bleed out femoral artery situation where you're dead. Yep. Most of these deaths that I mentioned are bleed outs from a curious shark. The shark didn't continue to attack and entirely eat the person. Although that did happen in Australia last week, another situation where they can't even find the body. They just found a shredded wetsuit. Wow. So anyway, it's a weird deal and it kind of yeah, comes down to how do we manage it as humans should we manage it should we just take our lumps as surfers and realize you know it is what it is and when you enter the water you're in their zone and too bad or yeah. do you take on this hey the you know the first quarter mile or mile of the coastline waters are are the humans for recreational purposes and so we need to manage that so that we can recreate, you know, these sharks can have the other 500, you know, 50,000 square miles of ocean. Just give us this one mile. Let's try to manage that through whatever that means. And maybe it means calling. Maybe it means shark netting. Maybe it means this other drone system that they have. Maybe who knows whatever it means. 
do we do that? And of course, they're, they are doing that in Australia. And it doesn't seem to be working so I was, great. I was going to say they do it with varying levels of effectiveness. Uh, I'm not against the netting at all. I can't see any downside to the netting and especially the beaches that they do it at, like, I don't know, um, the super bank kind of zone. Guy got hit there. Yeah, exactly. The shark <laughs> made it through the net somehow. Right. Yeah. That was the Nick Slater situation. But um, those aren't exactly areas that I think the shark would if there weren't humans in the water, I don't know how much time sharks would spend there anyways. It's not like real um, ripe with ecolog with uh, other prey that the shark would want. You know, it's not like there's seals swimming around the super bank because there's so many human beings there. So there's no reason. It's not really disrupting the shark's environment is what I'm suggesting. So I'd say net all the areas that aren't going to really disrupt the shark's environment. Like you said, the shark can have the other 50,000 square feet of ocean that exists. Yeah. 50,000 square miles that exist. Square miles. Did I say feet? <laughs> no, I think you said miles, but it's still a funny estimate. Um, 50,000 square miles. <laughs> so yeah, it's, there's no reason not to net as far as Are you as suggesting I, I just grab that number out of thin air and I didn't really like look at an atlas or anything? I think there's probably at least 60,000 square miles right. That's, at least. Yeah. Yeah, you so you're me. only 10,000 off. Yeah, and you got to give me 10,000 of leeway. Exactly. Oh, fair enough. Okay, fine. You were right. You were right. Yeah. I was wrong. Um, anyways, there's this documentary on Netflix called My Octopus Teacher. Have you seen this? Oh, I saw it. Yeah. I, I was told to watch it that it was fascinating. And um, I watched it and I kind of lost interest. In yeah, it no, bit. it's not good. Yeah, I, my, yeah. It, I mean, it, yeah, it's not know. good. I, so I I'm not see. recommending that people watch it. And I actually didn't finish it either. But the part that's not good about it is this super sensitive guy having his life radically altered <laughs> by his encounter with an octopus underwater. And it's like, oh, my gosh, this could have been a five minute PBS segment. I don't need a full documentary. Anyway, what is interesting about it, and it relates to this, this shark segment is this guy, uh, he's in South Africa and he's free diving, by the way, wetsuitless in like 50 degree water, uh, which is crazy. He said after the first year, you start to crave it. <laughs> I'm like, crave the cold water. I'm thinking to myself, if it takes me a year of doing something every day to get to the point that I crave it, I don't need to do that thing. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but the point is he goes to the exact same spot every single day to interact with this octopus in her cave. And what, what was most interesting to me that is, is that in this kind of 10 foot by 10 foot radius or this 10 foot radius that he's dealing with, how much life goes on there and how much of it shifts and changes and how that little ecosystem is so unique, like wildly unique and how many different things live in it that you or I, I mean, it really puts things into perspective. This is again, a 10 foot radius in the ocean that is 50,000 square miles big. So imagine what, imagine what all of the other 50,000 square miles are. Like it's that times infinity over and over again. And then you and I are just a version of that. You know, we're just specs. Yeah. Yeah. We're just specks of nothingness on this dust ball floating in a universe. Like it's crazy. That's some humility right there. We it, are not. It really made me feel uh, that way. So I've got some numbers for you. 
Um, okay, 140 million square miles. The, ocean the, world, the world's oceans, 140 square miles. That's just the surface, right? So the actual volume is uh, 320 million cubic miles. Who measured that? Wikipedia. He's incredible, that guy. <laughs> <laughs> Who is there with a measuring bucket one gallon at a time? That's what I would like to know. Anyway, it speaks to what you're talking about, right? And actually, that part of the documentary was kind of fascinating, yeah. right? Like, when he first dove in and was swimming around, like, the, maybe the first 30 minutes, I was, I was kind of like, okay, this is kind of cool. I'm, maybe something good's going to happen here, you know? Um, and so that part was fascinating, all the little the biodiversity and everything that was happening in that little, and it was a beautiful part of South Africa, and it looked sharky. <laughs> oh, well, he, and, oh, he interacts with sharks throughout the whole thing. Um, so it, it really is like an eye opener. And I had like an existential, like, you know, moment of recognizing my own mortality where, man, I take stuff so seriously and it doesn't matter at all. That octopus just got his arm eaten by a shark and then it grew back. Like, and then, <laughs> like, that and, put you in your place, didn't it? Well, the other thing is he was so concerned about that octopus. Like I got to protect but then the octopus is eating all these other animals and fish along the way. He doesn't care at all about any of those other life yeah. forms. Yeah. Why he chose to care about this one life form and not any of the others was strange. <laughs> and it, again, it put my own reality into. Uh, but you, you know what else does that is that, is that book Sapiens. That yeah. book Sapiens helps to kind of provide some self-inflicted humility where you're like, okay, I'm just this little thing here. And all my little fears and everything that's going on, nobody cares. Nobody, there, only one person gives a shit about all the stuff that's in your head, and that's you and the 400 people that reside inside your head. For sure. And beyond that, to think that you are an expert on something is laughable. <laughs> so to think, like, no matter how devout you are as a religious person or how convinced you are as a scientific person or whatever, right you have to have a real shocking amount of hubris to understand your small role in the entire universe. Like yeah. there is so much that is unknown. You cannot be convinced of anything. You need to yeah. constantly feel uh, humble and yeah. open-minded. That is the only way. Totally agree. And, and um, yeah, there's a lot to unpack there philosophically, but yeah, that's fascinating. And, and that's a really good take. And yeah, that show, I don't, I don't know. Not sucked. Watch. Don't, yeah, watch sucked. don't watch it. Hey, bringing it back to Wilco, Matt Wilkinson, and, make, and bringing it back to the superficial. Yeah. Uh, has there ever what been- What kind of wax are you using? <laughs> <laughs> no, has there ever been a greater rise, fall, and rise again? I'm sorry, rise? No. Has there ever been a greater fall- rise to fall again you're talking matt about wilkinson. my sourdough bread <laughs> is that what this is about matt wilkinson you better put this into context which Dude, the was guy, the fall which was the rise which was the fall this this shows what focus and determination can do for you matt wilkinson was a fledgling pro surfer in the 20th rankings for i don't know eight years partnered with Glenn Hall as a coach, shed some weight, hit the gym, focused on his actual potential, 
more than the gym and the other thing, I think the focus on his actual potential is key here. Rocketed, won the first two events of the season, I, maybe even the third event, uh, or maybe final than the third event. And then was a number, he was a world title contender for two years, thanks to Glenn Hall, and then fell off again. And now he's sponsorless and off tour. And, you know, I think he has some investments. He has like a restaurant hotel thing. He's probably going to do fine. But in terms of achieving his potential as an athlete and as a surfer, focus was what you can pin all of it on. Yeah. I mean, we've said many times at that level, they're all great surfers, especially when you focus on the top 10, they're all great surfers. And the difference between the top 10 and the top 20 is oftentimes between their ears. Always. Actually, Barton Lynch and I talk a lot about that. And it's um, it's a good podcast. I've gotten a lot of great feedback. So if you get a chance, go to surfsplinterpodcast.com and check out the um, boardroom podcast with Barton Lynch. It's pretty good. It's Yeah, search it on uh, whatever podcast app you're listening to this and you can find it, The Boardroom Show. Um, Dane Reynolds has got a um, new wetsuit for the well-rounded surfer. <laughs> <laughs> Great intro. Congratulations. You can retire. So first of all, Stab, Stab is, I mean, talk about a press release. (laughs) Did you see this? I saw the news story or the Dane advertising it on Instagram. I did not see Stab's story. So according to Stab, we know that according to Stab, Dane Reynolds received at least in the past few years, at least um, one possible sponsorship from from a wetsuit company. It was going to be three years for $100,000. 100000 a year, yeah. Yeah. And he turned it down. And um, he's been wearing a bunch of different wetsuits, blah, blah, blah. He's been wearing wetsuits from our preferred wetsuit brand. Need essentials. Well, I mean, we we weren't ever supposed to discuss it because it wasn't an official relationship. Right. But let's just say, if Dane's choosing his own rubber, that maybe he would share our same preference. Well, now um, he's starting his own wetsuit line under the Buell Wetsuit Company. It's going to be called Subdivision. Um, he's going. Dane's going to be involved in designing the suits, and he's going to have complete creative control. And again, it's Buell subdivision. It's Dane Reynolds wetsuits, right? And Stab posted a crumpled up like photocopy of Dane's little etching of the suit and what it's going to look like and stuff. And here's some of the stuff that it said on this little etching. <laughs> In classic like Dane, his charming little scribble, you know what I mean? Yeah. It said, minimal branding, no silly marketing, no gimmicks, no bullshit. Dane's going to get a monthly salary and part of the sales. And um, sort of reminded me of that, the little wetsuit thing that he des- designed. It, it's, it's sort of from Spinal Tap. You know that scene in Spinal Tap when David St. Hubbins, they, they finally get Smell the Glove. You know their new album, Smell the Glove. The, the album cover art finally comes out. And David St. Hubbins looks at the album cover and it's completely black. And he's like, it's black. It's black. Smell the glove is black. And he goes, can it get any more blacker? 
and uh, Nigel Nigel Tuffman goes, no, none, none blacker. <laughs> it's so funny. Anyway, you had to see it. I butchered it pretty bad. But um, it, it's kind of uh, got a little neat essentials vibe, I got to say. No, so look, I think this is a good move for Dane, and I'll explain all of that. But let me first poke a hole. What are the things that you just said? Because he already stepped on his own toes. No gimmicks. Wow, this feels really gimmicky. Very little marketing. Wow, because I saw this story on five different platforms and 20 different Instagram feeds already. So forget about the no marketing part. What was the other one? Um, no, uh, no gimmicks, no bullshit, minimal branding. Minimal branding. Yeah, right. I guarantee those suits, they're not going to be straight black. They're going to have colors on them. They're going to have logos on them. Uh, which, so I think all of that is funny. Him scribbling them on a piece of paper and either publishing them on Instagram or putting up, sending them to Stab so that they could publish them is an intentional marketing effort. But all of that aside, I said it's a good thing. Here's why it's a good thing. That's Dane's brand. When he did Summer Teeth with Quicksilver, it was this offshoot that ultimately <laughs> Quicksilver quickly um, went through a belt tightening and that was one of the things that got cut. It was a huge mistake. Summer Teeth was a huge success and it fit Dane's brand perfectly. The hand-drawn thing, he was hand-drawing the Quicksilver logos on the board, his hand-drawn thing. He's raising kids now. His wife's posting hand-drawn doodles of them on Instagram all the time. This also makes sense from a business standpoint. Buell is a small wetsuit brand that uh, could never come up with a marketing budget that would allow them to access the audience that Dane already has innately, but they have the supply chain thing already worked out. So for Dane to come in and go, Hey, you've, I don't want to do any of the fulfillment that I've been doing for former right now is the bane of my existence. And he has said this much where they over uh, projected former's expectations and hired a bunch of people and then realized they were out of money, had to let everybody go. And now Dane is literally fulfilling orders out of his garage and he wow. doesn't like, and he doesn't like doing it. So he looks at the wetsuit thing and he goes, who can I partner with who will do all of the shipping and fulfillment for me, all of the uh, seasonal planning, all of that nightmare stuff, forecasting the budget, whatever. Yeah. And I can just put my name on it, do the designs and take a cut. Oh, okay. That's what I'm going to do. And so that's what he's doing. And it's going to, it's going to amount more to more than a hundred thousand dollars a year that he would have got paid uh, flat out. Yeah. Or, I mean, that's, that's if Buell can actually execute their end of the bargain, which yeah. my only experience with Buell was long ago, 10 years ago, I tried to buy some wetsuits, took a month to show up. They sent me the wrong colors. I couldn't get them returned. It was like a nightmare situation, but that was 10 years ago. Maybe that, maybe they've got it sorted out. I've heard, I've heard really good things about those suits. Actually. The suits were good. I mean, the yeah. guy, I think he was at hotline before or something. Yeah, maybe. Um, but so the suits, you know, I'm sure they'll keep you warm, but whether or not the business part gets all executed as flawlessly as Dane might be hoping remains to be seen. But the reality is Dane, that kind of scribbly stuff people like people want and people will support. So I think it's a smart move for Dane. Yeah, I do too. Um, Speaking of, here. by the way, we got to introduce, uh, 
so not only has Need Essentials been sponsoring us since the beginning, um, or not since the beginning, but for a very long time. Yeah. I told you last week I ordered my new suit. I got it. I haven't worn it because it's uh, – actually, let me just grab it. It's right here. 70 degrees out. Yeah. I mean, the water's 70 degrees. The water is way too warm to actually wear it, but look at this is the ultra premium suit. Let me see. Let me see. So glued and taped seams, obviously. Uh, front zip. And then look at when I go inside. What I'm going to reveal to you right here, Scott. Thermal lining. Nice. Ultra quick dry thermal lining throughout. The thing is like wearing a wool blanket in nice. the water. So I haven't actually worn it yet, but um, there's nothing more important than having a fresh suit when the water does actually drop down to the 50s no doubt um we also are introducing a brand new sponsor today can you believe it can you believe it i am excited it's been a long time i love fins it's been a long time coming scott yeah we've needed a partner somebody to partner right along nestled us alongside need essentials and uh, i'm broke (laughs) there you go that helps scott needs another mexico trip guys (laughs) I'm unemployed. Um, so here's the reality. The way that Need Essentials came to be, for yep. those of you who have been with us for a long time, or Eduardo will find out when he makes it through another 100 episodes. Five years from now. Um, yeah. <laughs> is you and I both bought Need Essentials wetsuits based on a recommendation of friends of ours. And then we Un- were on air. Unbeknownst to each other. Unbeknownst, yeah. yeah. You, we were on air, and I think you brought it up first. You go, dude, I got to tell you about this crazy deal. And uh, I'm like, no, me too. Need essentials? You're like, yeah, me too. So we both talked about it organically on the podcast. They heard uh, listeners, I think, sent that to need essentials. So they listened to it and they're like, you guys, we would love just to work out a deal and help support your work. And so that's what we've been doing for the last couple of years with need. Same exact thing has happened with NVS fins. Surfnvs.com is their website. But NVS fins, two guys, Jamin and Leif. Uh, I met them at your boardroom show two years ago now and they just approached and they were like, dude, we listen to the podcast. We like what you're doing. We want to show you our fins and like get you a set or whatever. At the boardroom show though, I interact with so many people. I didn't take them all that seriously. Like they showed me the fin and they basically, what they explained to me was, look, we use this different material, G10 fiberglass laminated in autoclave that allows us to basically get a tighter foil on the fin. So through the traditional process of laminating things, you build up a lot of material. And so you, when you try to cut that foil real, real narrow, there's not enough material that lasts and it ends up chipping away or breaking. So they have to leave the foils a little fatter so that the material's intact and has the strength that you need for the fin to last. They go, look at the foil and they just hand me the fin and the thing is sleek, super sharp, super sleek, super lightweight and almost bulletproof like just strong, you know? And they go, so because of this little unlock and other companies know about this material, but at scale, they can't do it. So we're small and we have no, we have just us owners and we're also catering to surfboard shapers. So we'll just go make small runs for individual surfboard shapers who want custom fins. And now there's customers who want them too. So I was like, okay, I get the concept, you know, whatever. Honestly, six or eight months went by where I'd never contacted them. They eventually reached out and they sent me some fins. I got on them and I was like, gosh, this is the first set of fins that I really feel the difference on. Like, not that I surf better or it's, it's like, I can feel what you're saying. My board's faster. It responds on a dime. And 
So I started writing their fins for a year. Then they started buying a little bit of advertising here and there. And then eventually reached out recently and they gave you some fins, I think. You got some yeah. C drives from them because we were talking yeah. about the C drives. So yeah. you and I both organically have kind of used the fins. And um, recently they were like, man, we're getting such good response from listeners who are buying fins off the website saying that they got them from you guys that we can't not support you. So NVS fins officially is the fin of Scott and David. Um, SurfNVS.com. The promo code is the word podcast. And you get 10% off their Apex series, which is the G10 material. Um, so go support. If you want to support us, support them is the way that you do it. Yeah. And, and, and my, my quick anecdote about that is that, um, you know, I got this new twin fin from Ryan Sakel. And, um, and I wrote it. Ryan and I were like, let's try the Rasta fins from Futures, which are kind of the keels. And, and I bought those and I wrote it and I loved the board and I loved the way the, the, the fins worked. And I was like, you know what? I want I've, I've always liked the traditional twin fin in my twin fins. I've never been a big keel guy cause they tend to, they're not, I don't know, to me, they're just not quite as, um, as responsive. They're more like down the line drivey, but they're not as, you know, in the pocket flippy. Yeah. And, um, and so I'm like, well, let me try the, my big MR twin fins, you know? So I put a set of futures in there that I have that are, I think they might've been the Aquila Ipa fins or I forget who, maybe that's what it was. Anyway, they're the big twins and the board worked good. And the fins worked great, by the way. And, and then you showed me these C drive fins, which are sort of the base of the keel, but the, the tall, you know, the, the vertical size and the little thinner um, foil or rake, uh, of the normal twin fin. So it's kind of like the best of both worlds. So I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to try it. Frankly, I was like, I'm probably not going to like these. They're just, they're a little, they're just a little bit uh, avant-garde. They're a little bit different, you know? And they look I'm, out there. Yeah, they look a little out there. And But I'm going to try them. Why not, you know? Plus, um, is it Jamin? Yeah. He seems like just a really nice guy. He was just like, hey, you know, like I just wanted to try them. And I tried them in really good waves, like chunky, meaty, four to six foot beach break, like legit waves. And um, the, the board worked insane. The fins worked great. There was nothing negative about it at all. Or I wouldn't, I wouldn't ride them. You know me, I'm going to ride the best regardless of who makes it, you know? Yeah. And, um, and I, and I've been with them ever since I've been riding those fins ever since. And I took them down to mainland Mexico with me and I'm a big fan. You got that sick photo of doing the backside turn and you could see the fin. Yeah. Exactly right. Yeah. So yeah, that this relationship again, it's all that I want for any advertising on any of our podcasts is a triple win. I want the listeners to win by like getting a really fairly priced product that they already need and want by getting the best version of a product and less expensive than they would normally pay. I want you and I to win by being able to run our business with brands that we enjoy and like. And I want the brand to win by being able to get $2 for every $1 they spend with us. And I really feel like both these relationships are that. It's a win, win, win. Yeah, and by the way, you know, these aren't the only fins that I ride. I have so many surfboards. I've got every single type of fin in the world in all my different boards, but I'm just saying that I'm a big fan of these fins and they're a staple in my um, Ryan Sakel twin fin, the, the uh, Zephyr. Well, by the way, 
they uh, said, Jamin and Leif, they were like, hey, we want to make sure that we send you and Scott Finns fairly regularly because we always have new things and we want you to be up to date, blah, blah, blah. And I thought to myself, man, I have a ton of fins too. And a ton of them just sit on the shelf. So we need to design a program where we give away fins to fans. So whatever new set we get, one comes out the back that we're not using anymore. And we give that away to listeners or donors. Yeah, or something. absolutely. Let's do it. Let's give. Recycle. Recycle fan. program. Uh, all right. I got a Duke and a Kook and a must-see moment. Yeah, let's lay them on me. Okay. My must-see moment is Mark Matthews' new film. Uh, yes. Are you watching this? No, but I want to. Is it on Surfline, right? No, it's on. It's exclusively available on um, Red Bull TV. So I'm sure Surfline linked to it. But okay. it's called it's called the Other Side of Fear. It's 57 minutes long, and it's Mark Matthews. It's all centered around Mark giving a keynote speech. Apparently, Mark does a lot of public speaking nowadays. Um, but the guy is a real warrior. Uh, fascinating figure that I really didn't know enough about, and this captivated me from the beginning. It's called the other side of fear because he's doing things that you think, oh, he doesn't have any fear. No, he explicitly states from the beginning, I have tremendous amount of fear and confronting fear is all that I'm looking to do. So as a result, I'm going to end up getting the biggest wave of the world. But if, you know, a 10 foot wave isn't like stimulating this thing in me, then it's not interesting. Surfing in itself isn't interesting. It's just me kind of chasing, confronting this fear. Hmm. And um, so I said it's centered around a keynote speech. They kind of <laughs> cut, they cut back and forth between what ultimately is like a really good TED talk yeah. and him going through these learning experiences, which have been tremendous injuries, shoulder ripped out of his socket in 2015 at the Jaws event, um, leg, crazy compound fracture in his leg, uh, about a year later, surfing um, a slabby right. So they show all of that stuff and get into detail. It's really, really good. So that's my must-see moment. What well, are some things we could, we could, we could put Mark into some situations where he could confront fear? I was thinking, let's drop him off homeless somewhere in like Los Angeles and just let him live for a week. That would be very <laughs> weird. I mean, that would be a confrontation of some fear. I think. I would think so. <laughs> Maybe throw them in the San Diego Zoo and in the hippopotamus enclosure. Scary. <laughs> hippos are hippos are crazy animals. They are. Um, all right, my Duke. Yeah. This goes to uh, two listeners who sent feedback about your speech about citizenship. Oh. Remember that? I do. Last week you were talking about the importance of being a citizen and voting. Yeah. The, I got two emails that I'd like to read to you. This uh, person says, hey guys, I appreciate you calling out voting as a mark of a good citizen on the recent show. This reminded, this reminder is more needed than we think sometimes. But being a good citizen is not only just to vote, which is a sacred right, but also to educate yourself sufficiently and be able to make the right voting decision. Having spent my childhood in the former Soviet occupied in a former Soviet occupied country with very few rights for the citizens and brutal crushing of dissent, my family moved to the U.S. and my parents contributed as cancer researchers for decades until their recent retirement. They escaped a political environment that's hard for me to even relate to, and very hard or impossible for most Americans to relate to. 
And if they could relate more to it, they'd appreciate their sacred right to vote and hold on to it with all their might and realize that the current attacks on democracy are not to be dismissed. They're fundamentally dangerous and in fact, un-American. The attacks on the core of democracy actually makes my mom cry. She cried when we gained citizenship and she's crying now for opposite reasons, out of frustration and fear and incredulity uh, that this could be happening here. My family treats voting and even the concept of democracy as a gift and a privilege. The last eight years, I've made a ritual to spend six to eight hours of my time to read through each proposal and measure, study up on candidates from presidents down to the city council. But even with those resources and the amount of time spent, it's sometimes hard to know how to make the right decision because politics is so steeped in marketing and trickery. But many more people than I could have imagined vote based on celebrity and brand rather than ideas and vision. So I appreciate the call to vote, regardless of who the vote is for, as long as it's an educated vote and treated as a sacred right. Cheers, Daniel. All right, Daniel, great email. We also got an update from Rainbow and Rainbow in New Zealand said <laughs> last weekend we had our election and the prospect of your election made our election better. People came out in droves and they voted early. There was no questions, no intimidation, just higher than normal participation. A number, a first world democratic election where everyone had an equal opportunity to participate. So thank you, America. I myself voted a week early and well outside my local electorate. Uh, selected bowling, polling booths have been open two weeks prior to the actual day. The process is real simple. It took five minutes. Uh, booths were socially distanced. A pen was provided for individuals. To satisfy listeners' inquisitiveness, I voted liberal, liberal, conservative, and conservative. We had two referenda to consider um, to legalize marijuana and the end-of-life euthanasia. So to wrap this up, I would say be confident in your electoral system, understand how you would like it to work for you and vote accordingly, vote early, vote on the day, vote by whatever approval means that your electoral system allows, but only vote once, of course. And he said, P.S., when I said America made New Zealand a better place, I thought I'd never say this and it's incredibly hard for me to swallow, but it's somehow true. But it's only because we can see the nadir of polarity currently espoused. From afar, American, America appears to be 323 million individual anarchists and that your politics serve as a locus of division. But somehow, from where you are today, you need to make it to the point of community and national unity because you can't go forward in a state of every moribund social destruction. The world can't afford America becoming a singular singularity of decay, drawing shocked onlookers towards the event horizon. All right. Rainbow. Ominous outlook from Rainbow. Bringing it. Ominous outlook from Rainbow. But again, the Duke is uh, people encouraging you to get out, educate yourself, and just vote. No, yeah. matter what, no matter what way. Yeah, vote. Have you voted? I have. Yeah. Good man. Thank you. Just go vote. You know what? Dwayne Allman would vote. Do you think he would? Yeah, I do. What about Greg? Greg, maybe not. <laughs> Who knows? All right. So, what are we? What are we signing off on? What song? 
Oh, Van Morrison. Yeah, I'll I'll send it over to you. Okay. Cool, buddy. Until next time, adios and aloha. Mm -hmm.